Blog Talk Radio. Um, esse projeto Ivia Cast, já não tem um, um X ano, uns 
acho que no Senado, no terceiro ano. E pronto, a ideia é sempre para trazer novidade e para não usar essa plataforma ali, para não uh, dividir informação uh, e dividir uh, coisas construtivas que, que, que te ajudam coletivamente e calverdianos uh, na toda parte do mundo, e, mas também uh, que te educa pessoas também, não te, que não pode criar e desenvolver uh, e coisas que não têm para nos desempenhar uh, na, na nossa vida. Portanto, hoje eu não tenho um, um convidado, uh, Dr. Richard Loben uh, Jr. Uh, é um, é um professor, uh, acho que é, é também da mais de Itália, mas era professor uh, de colégio na Rhode Island College por muitos anos, uh, acho mais de, de 20 anos que, que tive na, e como prof, professor ou professor de colégio, uh, também antropologista, uh, especializado na, na área de, uh, uh, de estudos africanos. E ainda toma um segundo te regressa logo uh, uh, só para um, um, uma situação técnica ali, te regressa e, com o Dr. Richard Logan. Em breve, não também tem o uh, Dr. Richard Lobin Jr. Na, na linha. E o Sr. Safala também fala com nós um bocadinho sobre essa uh, experiência, mas também uh, num aspecto histórico. Eu tive a oportunidade de estar na Guiné-Bissau naquele tempo de, de uh, luta armada para a independência de Guiné-Bissau e Cabo Verde. E tem conhecimento pessoalmente de que um, heróis do povo, combatentes, é, e depois também estive a seguir o desenvolvimento de não só Guiné-Bissau, mas também Cabo Verde, depois de independência. E é claro, tem sua opinião, mas também tem, uh, é, é tem factos. Portanto, não tem o Dr. Richard Loben uh, na linha, uh, não sabe falar com ele uh, agora. E também pessoas que estão interessadas, senhores Porichoma, senhores têm pergunta. Em primeiro lugar, esta fala sobre essa experiência e depois uh, nunca tem a linha aberta para pessoas que têm pergunta para que fique só mim também, mas mim tem uns bombocados de pergunta para ele. E, e como para eficiência de tempo, o é que não está fazendo? Uh, em primeiro, não está falando em inglês, não está bem hoje assim, também tá fazer um sumário de tudo isso de melhor forma possível uh, na crioulo, mas infelizmente. Uh, embora que eu tenha tido show de crioulo, eu pode pôr algumas coisas de, eh, na crioulo, mas uh, em geral eles também fala na, na inglês. Então, mas tinha pessoas também um, uh, desfrutam de show de essa conversa ali. Hello, Dr. Lobin. Hello. How do you do? Dr. Lobin. Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. 
uh, to come uh, to EliaCast podcast, uh, this platform. It's something that um, I initiated to um, uh, more from an educational platform, but also right. to, um, you know, just any information that we have that we could uh, share with the diaspora, but also people in Cape Verde is, is very important. We've had um, a lot of uh, uh, folks that, that uh, in the past, uh, such as uh, the former Prime Minister, Dr. Carlos Vega, uh, we've had uh, during the, the election, this recent election, we had the, the opportunity also speaking at the time a candidate, she's the current president of PAICV, um, uh, a party, uh, the opposition party right now, Miss Arthur Amada Janita. And also, uh, we typically do this in Creole, but, and I understand you also do know and understand a lot of Creole, but for yeah. the interest of time and efficiency, I think it would be best but feel free to interject whenever you want to say anything in Creole, but it would, it would be best if we have this dialogue in English and then I'll try yeah, my think, best to summarize yeah, this. Probably. And if there's any yeah. confusion so, or clarification, then, you know, we can always review. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, so what, yes, what, what, what we could do, we could start with, um, if you could give us a little bit of background about you, y- yourself as far as uh, sure. I find it very interesting that, uh, you know, um, an American uh, would take uh, at a young age uh, or as a young adult would take um, a, a strong interest in African studies and, mm-hmm. and also uh, take the challenge because it would be a challenge today, let alone back then, but take the challenge to, to go to Guinea-Bissau during the, the, the fight, during the, 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 sure. the struggle, the arms uh, struggle for independence um, in the, um, I believe it was in the uh, late 60s, early 70s? Well, for, you, you had a, uh, for Guinea-Bissau, it was uh, late, the early 70s, before the end of the war. Early 70s. But so I can what, give you a I'll, little uh, background. It, it, yes, if you, well, if you could, please, you know, I'll turn the. Sure. I yes, I think like, like anybody growing up, I was born <laughs> in the South, and it was completely uh, Jim Crow laws. And so I experienced the uh, aspects of racism. I was a white privilege, of course, on my side, but I also had my eyes open. And so that was the beginning of my exposure. And then as civil rights movement uh you know, emerged that I was at the I Have a Dream speech, so I was looking up in the Lincoln Memorial at Martin Luther King, and then it was, of course, also the uh, anti-Vietnam War. I was uh, opposed to the war on ethical, moral, strategic uh, level. And then because the civil rights struggle and the uh, anti-war struggle, that got my eyes open to what was going on in Africa. And so I uh, focused on the African liberation struggles, even while I was an undergraduate, and that was when I had my first course on on Africa in 1961. I saw King in 63, and I was in Africa 64, working in Mozambique. So I was 
this even before the war began in, uh, it, with Filimo against Portuguese colonialism. And then in the uh, late 60s, I got more involved with the uh, anti-apartheid, anti-colonial struggles, and we formed a Southern Africa magazine, and each one of the members had a specific assignment, Mozambique, Angola, Namibia, Southern Rhodesia, and my assignment was on Guinea and Cape Verde. So that's when I, that's how it all emerged in a very, you know, condensed way. And then uh, my wife and I got our master's at Temple, and, and we went on for our PhDs in African studies and anthropology. So back to Africa again in 1970. Uh, then we were in Sudan, and as a journalist in Sudan, I covered the war in Eritrea, again, for independence of Eritrea. So that was that experience. And then I worked for the military government of Khartoum, which was facing war in South Sudan. So again, I had a military experience. And then the chance came to uh, go to Guinea-Bissau. Uh, probably I was first planning to go 71 or 72, and that didn't work out for a lot of logistic reasons. But then I met Luis Cabral in uh, Dakar, went down to Ziegenshore, and then started my long walk, which you know we can talk about. I thought I was just going to go in for a few days, but it turns out I walked completely across the country from Senegal to uh, Guinea-Conakry, about 150 miles, uh, but it was in wartime, and we had minefields and you know potential uh, air attack. And finally, it turned out I was... Uh, one of the first journalists, I guess maybe the first journalist to be at the Battle of Gilej or the Operation Amilcar Cabral, which led directly to uh, independence of Guinea and more or less directly into independence of Cape Verde and ultimately to the collapse of the colonial fascist government in Portugal uh, with the armed forces movement. So I was a witness of history, uh, already predisposed to looking and supporting African liberation. So that gives you a little bit of background, and, and we can go go from there. Hello? Yes, uh, th- yeah, yes. I, I was waiting for you to uh, Yeah. Uh, to, to well, so if that. there are thank, questions thank you that, that you have, yeah. and that just gives yes, you a background uh, of how I got started. Yes, thank you for that. That, that was great, mm-hmm. um, uh, because a lot of times people may say, well, what would uh, interest someone to um, uh, to get involved in, in, in such things? So uh, definitely your mm-hmm. up, uh, upbringing um, uh, definitely had uh, an impact. Now uh, yeah. I was present at the um, uh, at the lecture that you did at uh, the the Bridgewater. Um, yes, uh, you, uh, I think it was March seventh. Uh, at the Peter mm-hmm. Peters Institute for Cape Verdean Studies, uh, which I thought was a very, very interesting lecture because you did it in um, a, a sort of like storytelling in a way. Uh, we don't have, um, just for interest of time, uh, I did uh, also, uh, I thank you for giving me that um, PowerPoint presentation which you used, which I've also right. been able to share with the public uh, uh, via the, the Ilya Cast podcast. Um, a platform via Facebook, and uh, but if yeah. you could give us um, a little bit of that um, um, synopsis, if you will, of that experience uh, that you had in your travels through Guinea-Bissau during the still 
during the in the midst of the I guess we could say the climax of uh, of that. Uh, yeah, it was. It was basically towards the end of the war, um, you know, with PIGC uh, founded in 1959, and then the armed struggle began 63 after the Pijiguiti massacre, and so it carried on basically through until 74, and that was the independence of Guinea-Bissau, and the following year, independence of Cape Verde. But I just uh, had my proper, you know, contacts with the liberation movement, particularly with uh, Luis Cabral, who was my escort to Ziegenshore down from Dakar. And then we took a, a military truck to Kolda, got out and met the some of the uh, regular soldiers, liberation soldiers of far the regular army of liberation army uh, in the north front. And we started, uh, you know, walking. Uh, some problems already. We had uh, a minefield that we had to go through. There was one dead person there, and we had to carefully avoid them for for fear that it had been mined, that somebody would approach the deceased. And, uh, and then uh, on the, still on the way, uh, we had to swim across the Korobal River, excuse me, the Cachet River in the north, and then walking uh, further south, finally getting to the middle of Guinea-Bissau with the Rio Grande or Jeba. And that we crossed uh, actually in the middle of the night, waiting till it was really dark. But then we got about halfway across this extremely wide river, like a mile or maybe wider. And then a Portuguese patrol boat came along, and uh, we thought we would be finished off. We were all ready to... Uh, jump in the water and, and either swim, and, and the soldiers had, you know, ready their uh, AK-47s to at least shoot back, but they had a 50 caliber on the front, so that would have been not good for us. But they went on down to Bissau. I could even see the lights of Bissau in the distance. And then finally on to uh, uh, the south of the river, and we crossed the um, Korobal River, with a dugout canoe there, it was fairly uh, high up the river, so it was just a short way by dugout. And then walking on to uh, Gilech, which had in operation Amilcar Cabral as a sort of revenge for the assassination of uh, Cabral on the 20th of January, 73. And I got there in um, early June uh, after it had fallen, and so I actually spent the night at that base uh, had some uh, found some parts of a Portuguese plane that had been shot down where the last major pilot was killed, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amid de Brito, and then the next uh, days uh, on to the to the border at Boque, uh, and then uh, then it was regular in independent Guinea Conakry, former French colony, and then on to the capital uh, Conakry where. The PIGC had uh, at its uh, office, so that's when I met Aristides Pereira exactly at the spot where Cabral had been killed uh, a few months earlier. So that was um, then I because I basically entered Guinea Conakry illegally. I was under house arrest until they could figure out some documents and have me go back to Dakar and pick up my my belongings there. So that was uh, in a very limited way what what I hap what happened and 
the space of May and June, and uh, and how I was a witness to the the last uh, uh, part of the war. Yes, that 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 was great. Again, uh, just summarizing that. Um, thank you for that. Um, now, as far as as far as you could tell, can you describe to us? especially someone like myself, I was obviously born after the independence, but still in the late Mm -hmm. 70s, um, as I was born. um, And I would think most uh, adults today that were born in the the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, there was a a strong sense of pride for uh, those, the the generations that that, that fought for the independence and um, a, a strong mm-hmm. sense of nationalism, but can you explain to us um, <clears throat> a little bit more about what was that makeup of the PAGC mm-hmm. um, uh, as a as an organization, as far as you as far as you can um, you could you could tell, but also uh, they had. Um, Different branches, such as the uh, the FARP, the F A R P, and the right. FAL, the F A L, uh, and then obviously you had the P A G C. But can you can you give us sure. a little bit more detail uh, about the um, uh, the different branches and and, and the P A G C uh, as a whole? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, P A I G C stands for Mm-hmm. the African Party for Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde. So the C is for Cape Verde. And much of the right. leadership, the top leadership of that political party was Cape Verdean. And, of course, in Guinea, the vast majority of the combatants were were, were African, the different uh, African groups that live in Guinea-Bissau and neighboring uh, lands. And the uh, FARP, or Forces Armadas Revolucionarias de Povo, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of the People, um, was like a regular army for offensive action. And then after areas would be um, liberated or the Portuguese presence, their forward operating bases or infrastructure, and, you know, removed or defeated or destroyed, then there would be the FAL, Forces Armadas Locais, um, which would come in and to defend the, these areas. Now, within the, those secure areas, they would make, uh, you know, an economic system rival to the Portuguese called Armazen de Povo, or the people's stores. And that's where people could receive, uh, uh, you know, the agricultural production or various things and then turn it into the goods which they needed, you know, knives or matches or cloth or whatever they needed. So they had a rival economy, which not only supported their their movement, but it also undermined the Portuguese. And within the liberated areas, they also had uh, uh, schools. I mean, these were very, very, very elementary schools. It was just some sticks with palm roof, maybe palm uh, leaf roof, and then trenches in case the Portuguese had air attack or bombing so the students could jump into the trenches. These were uh, schools called semi-internato. The, they were semi-boarding schools. And then outside of, uh, like in Guinea-Conakry, they had like high schools under the leadership of you know local teachers. So they had a rival economy. They had a defense force and a militia. 
and an alternative uh, economy to consolidate. And gradually, uh, the South was liberated more or less first, except for some of the forward operating bases, then the North, then the East. And so when by the time I got there, the war was already uh, 10 years old or 8 years old. And uh, the Portuguese were largely confined to the main towns like Farim and, and, and Bolama and Basau and so forth. Um, but the rural areas were basically lost to the Portuguese. This disillusioned the Portuguese conscripts, first because they didn't want to be there. They were you know, forced to be there. Um, and uh, the other important part is this was in a Cold War context. So um, the PIGC was following you know, Eastern Europe, China, Soviet Union, and supported more by them, and, and Scandinavian countries, human rights people. And, of course, Portugal was a member of NATO. So many of the weapons they had were from Europe or from South Africa or from U.S., like the, the napalm, which they used, that was all uh, American. So that gives you another idea of the context and situation. So would you say that that basically uh, within the context of geography, uh, the, the Portuguese at the time, uh, basically they did not really venture too much into the interior, being that Guinea-Bissau right. as a country is a country that has a yep. lot of uh, rivers, a lot of streams, um, right. and it's not probably the easiest to navigate. To, to, you know, navigate through um, as terrain-wise, so um, they concentrated more in the urban uh, areas. So that was a strategic approach that uh, the leadership, uh, especially under Milka Cabral, took to to start from the interior of the country, mobilize, and then come towards the the, the urban areas, the cities. That's right. Well, in in addition, uh, even small bridges – uh, you know, in the interior would be destroyed by engineering units of the of PAIGC, FARP units that would, you know, dynamite. They tried and largely succeeded not to have civilian targets, but military targets. So that was uh, quite a contrast because any of the uh, rebels, the PAIGC, that were captured, usually they were executed uh, in the field and they didn't take uh, prisoners. Whereas um, the PIGC, if they captured Portuguese, they would ultimately turn them over to uh, to the UN, and just under the promise they wouldn't come back. Well, and of course, they didn't want to come back anyway. Uh, one of the other exceptions is that quite early in the war, in order to demonstrate their capacity, they did attack uh, Bissalanka Airport, which was a big shock. That was a critical part of the defense air defense system. But gradually they lost control over the ground, and basically towards the end they only had superiority. Uh, the Portuguese only had superiority in the air, and when that uh, Fiat G91, uh, you know, ground attack plane was uh, shot down, then they no longer had that, and and even except for the major rivers, they weren't secure, and so it was just a matter of time. Uh, finally, when Guinea-Bissau declared independence in September 2473, uh, many African countries recognized it, but it was until a year later that it was fully recognized by UN. And then 
Uh, already the negotiations for the independence of Cape Verde were actively underway in Algeria. And so Cape Verde became independent, uh, which had a lot of other politics to do with. Some Cape Verdeans were keen to stay linked to Portugal and others were having different ideological views. But the party had always insisted on the joining Guinea with Cape Verde. Indeed, they had been administered uh, jointly until 1879. And then after that, they were administered as two separate <coughs> countries. So Cape Verde became independent, 5th of July, uh, 1975. I, I was uh, there for independence, and then I went over to Guinea-Bissau to interview uh, Luis Cabral, who by that time was president of Guinea-Bissau, at least for five years till he was actually overthrown in a military coup. Uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about your understanding or your knowledge of the leadership of PIEGC when when they were mm-hmm. created, uh, when they in in its uh, um, infant stage uh, uh, and, and sure. then towards more uh, mature stage? What can you tell us about that uh, that leadership? Well, the leadership of PAIGC and some other rivals too, like Fling, um, as well as the leadership of the liberation movement in Angola and in Mozambique. They were all the relatively few educated people. After 500 years of quasi-colonialism, the Portuguese did very little to educate anybody. But the leadership of these three movements uh, were were linked. Uh, Cabral, for example, was a co-founder of the MPLA in Angola. The Liberation Movement for Angola, um, and then, then uh, uh, Eduardo Mundlane, the founder of the Frelimo in Mozambique, they all joined together, including another group for Sao Tome and Principe, the MLSTP. They all joined together under the what's called the CONCP, the Conference of Nationalist Organizations in the Portuguese Colonies. So. Each one was aiming towards political independence, which they ultimately got. Uh, and some were quite advanced uh, in war, like in Guinea-Bissau, in, in actually guerrilla struggle. Uh, parts of Mozambique and parts of uh, uh, Angola were also advanced, but not so far uh, you know, uh, as uh, was uh, Guinea-Bissau. So they, the empire was crumbling. And unfortunately, in some cases, uh, in Cape Verde, we or fortunately, Cape Verde became extremely uh, democratic, and you know has never had uh, political instability and so forth. Guinea-Bissau, unfortunately, went through many coups and revolts and civil war and so forth. Uh, ditto for uh, um, Angola. So they were all linked, as much as the Portuguese were linked with NATO, and so they would have other NATO weapons, a little bit of foreign uh, troops, but Guinea-Bissau was of relatively low value. And unlike Mozambique and Angola, which had pretty substantial settler colonial populations, Guinea-Bissau had uh, a very little uh, population of actually European Portuguese. And the values of of, uh, Guinea-Bissau were largely in agriculture, maybe rice and cashew nuts, which they actually get their name from the town of Cashew. Um, and so the economy was not that much productive. And then when the cost of war mounted, 
it was an economic uh, catastrophe, basically, for Portugal. So that gives you a little more of that uh, context. Um, you also, I mean, you, you, you live a, a good amount uh, of your life through the uh, those those years of the you know mm-hmm. the the peak of the um, of the so-called Cold War era, right. and can you tell what can you tell us about the Novo Estado or the new state regime, uh, mm. which is to many consider a fascist regime um, yeah. of Portugal, which um, over um, which administered or uh, oversaw that uh, empire colonies uh, right. for almost sixty years, if not more. But um, what right. can you tell us about about that? I mean, well, uh, we have first of all the global issues of sexism and racism, so that almost goes without uh, saying. Uh, but Portugal had two more layers of colonialism. In some cases, like England was colonial but democratic. And then Portugal was colonial, racist, sexist, and fascist. Uh, now, the U.S. incorporated, or the NATO partners incorporated Portugal basically because they were anti-communist. So it was NATO against the Warsaw Pact countries of Eastern Europe. But make no mistake about it, Portugal was a, a dictatorship. Uh, they overthrew an elected government. Uh, president, uh, presidential system, and and they played the card of anti-communism, and it was terrible uh, repression with their uh, instruments of repression. First called PED, the, in, the International Police of the Defense of the State, and then the, later on the DGS, which was basically just renamed from PED. They had uh, torture camps like in Cape Verde, Tarafal, and of course assassinations. Uh, in the colonies, and it was a it was a brutal, uh, undemocratic, uh, you know, fascist state. So, by the liberation of Guinea, it put um, weakness on on that. And then, of course, like dominoes, and then Cape Verde fell, and then finally, even uh, the uh, movement of the armed forces, forces uh, movement of forces armadas, the 25th of April, uh, 75. Then the whole enterprise uh, collapsed, and now, and ever since then, Portugal has had its economic problems, social, political problems, like a normal country, but it has never moved from democracy. And this would be ditto for Franco's Spain, which was equally a dictatorship, um, and they just didn't have so many colonies uh, in Africa, uh, and the Spanish-speaking colonies or former colonies nations in. South America had already become independent of Spain. So the Spaniards and the Portuguese both were suffering from dictatorship up until the end of Franco and the end of uh, Salazar Caetano. Now, Portugal also had a, from what I understand, it it had a very short period of time in in that transition from that uh, dictatorship Mm -hmm. into democracy. They had a short period of Communism is that is that correct or am I off well there on were that? a short period the, of time the port the Portuguese Communist Party was did exist it was relatively small quite militant uh, but the Portuguese uh, Socialist Party was uh, stronger and much more 
effective. And so the government of Mario Suarez came to power as a socialist government. Since that time, they've had different elections. Uh, Portugal isn't very strong economically, but uh, you know they have maintained the democracy and they've had uh, different com- combination governments, uh, coalition governments. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, in in uh, Spain, uh, the same is more or less true, except they still have a king. The king of Portugal is doesn't amount to anything. But so they have a basically constitutional monarchy, not anti-fascist, non-fascist in Spain, and a republican government in Portugal. Um, and uh, the situation is, um, you know, stable. And as much as European politics these days are stable, which maybe with Brexit and economies and refugees from Syria and North Africa and Africa, you know, there's a lot of serious problems in Europe, but at least uh, the lack of democracy is not a current problem, but it is threatened by by the immigrants and by white supremacy and these kind of as- aspects. It's, of course, a modern European problem and not a problem. Maybe the source of the problem comes from Africa and the Middle East, but those are the aspects they face in uh, modern-day Europe. Now, to get back on, and from a historical point of view, what can you tell us about General Spinola? I know you brought him up mm-hmm. briefly uh, because it was a right. short period of time when we put it into historical context. But what's significant right. about General Spinola being uh, a military uh, a person and who, I believe, uh, for a short period of time, did rule Portugal and the colonies? Is that correct? Right. Uh, yes, well... Uh, not quite correct. It's sort of a technical point, but okay. he was a, a high-ranking uh, Portuguese military officer, uh, you know, basically pro-fascist. Uh, be, uh, they more or less sat out World War II. They didn't actively support uh, Franco, I mean um, Mussolini or Hitler, but they didn't really do much to support the Allies either. Uh, they could have done more. Uh, but he had gone through the ranks and was a you know senior. I think he was probably four star. I forget. Um, and uh, he was then during the latter part of the war in Guinea-Bissau. He was governor general of Guinea-Bissau. So I can recall in being in the forest, you know, in small huts or maybe just out in the open. At night we would listen to Radio Bissau, and we would hear Spinola talking about the terrorists, and we'd kind of joke a little bit because we were the terrorists supposedly um, and then after independence then he was critical in the negotiations for the independence of Cape Verde but they was very worried about uh, Cape Verde turning into pro-Soviet base uh, the Soviet Union probably wanted that but uh, they, the leaders of PIGC said we haven't fought for independence just to have dependence upon somebody else and we appreciate uh, Soviet Union support, but we don't want that. So on that basis, Cape Verde basically became independent. But then because he was a force of um, transition and stability, he was also the uh, head of uh, government of Portugal until finally he was moved out of out of power. So he had these three different key roles in that transitional time, governor general of Bissau, key negotiator for independence, and then finally head of uh, government uh, for a short while uh, in 
in Portugal. He's since, uh, of course, died. But so that's a little bit of his situation. Now, from from my from my experience, I can only speak for myself. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the reason is, but from my experience, I really, really hear people uh, that lived through uh, the decades under colonialism really speak out mm-hmm. about the living conditions of the time. But sure. um, from from information that I received, um, the living conditions, not just in Cape Verde, but in mainland Africa, those colonies, it was, it right. was terrible. Uh, and the, the suffering was incredible with famine, especially in Cape Verde, uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of people would die uh, due to famine, which was directly uh, linked to um, neglect of uh, yes. of the, the Portuguese government. Uh, can you touch a little bit about the condi- the living condition the that people lived under, so we could put it a little bit in the context of the motivation that mm-hmm. led people like Amilcar Cabral, Billy Duarte, Pedro Pires, and, and, and many others to come together for, right. within the context of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde. Yeah, well, to start with the Cape Verdean case, famine was actually not just an accident. I mean, they could have prevented it. As For example, after independence, they've never had famine, and it's the same place. So they have right. a mer- they have commitment to support the people, but it was a policy of neglect and indifference from just selfishness and economy. But then it would compel Cape Verdeans, especially Badiou and so forth, to go to Sao Tome, uh, Principe to pick uh, bananas and, and crops and so forth. Uh, they were so desperate to leave or come to America on whaling ships or another kind of or go to Europe to work on ships or go to Portugal to work as domestic. So it was a driving force to generate cheap labor. So it was not just uh, mean-spirited. It was actually, I would say, uh, deliberate. But then meanwhile, in in interior Guinea-Bissau or interior Mozambique or Angola, uh, the poverty was extreme. Uh, in the vast majority of the population never saw a doctor in their lives they practically never went to any kind of serious school. So it was complete neglect to keep the people, you know, subordinated, not communicating, not educated. Uh, so it was actually a humanitarian uh, catastrophe and disgrace. When you think that sometimes the Portuguese said there are 500 years of missão uh, civilizado, you know, to make the civilizing mission, and that was the result. Uh, it's uh, it's just, of course, a notorious uh, misrepresentation of the reality. Even to say 500 years of colonial rule, until the Berlin Congress of 1885, they barely even penetrated uh, the interior except for slave raids and so forth. So uh, that needs to be sort of deconstructed or analyzed. Was it really 500 years? The answer pretty clearly is no. And then if after even decades, the result... Uh, from 1884 to independence was, uh, you know, poor health, poor education, poor infrastructure. Uh, It's not a big compliment to the colonial administration. So that gives you some sketch. 
I would see people in the rural areas that just had basically uh, rags, uh, only with the liberated zones where they would get a uniform or weapon or tools and so forth, did they have some kind of hope. So they were truly desperate and thus eagerly uh, uh, tempted or inclined to join up the liberation movement, which gave them some hope uh, for the future, which, you know, at least they got independence, the post-colonial mismanagement and stability that became another problem. But at least now Africans were making their own problems uh, that needed their own solutions and not the Portuguese coming from Portugal to, you know, oppress them. So that gives you some idea about that. Absolutely. And, and that economical, um, uh, the economical objective or influence it's something that a lot of times kiss my mind, and you know, you you just mm-hmm. think about the the brutality, and you're thinking, well, what would bring the hatreds? But a lot of times, the uh, the motivating force, it's a uh, a lot of it is economical. I mean, if you're trying to, for sure, you know, uh, take things from well, people and stuff like that, you have to d- demean yeah. them first to justify. But make no mistake, for centuries. Yeah. For centuries, there was just complete slavery. So, I mean, it's hard to find right. anything more uh, brutal than that. And Guinea-Bissau, in particular, was a main, uh, the main export uh, was ivory, gold, and slaves. And they went to Cape Verde first. Uh, a few exported back up to Europe, but the vast majority of slaves passed through Cape Verde uh, to Brazil, to Grand Pará and Maranhão in Salvador, you know, the northeastern part of Brazil. Um, and then there was another, like, usually sort of four or 5,000 slave population in Cape Verde to work the lands and, you know, be, um, you know, farmers, herders, domestic servants, washer people. So they had the three, uh, you know, or, or four slave trades, the one to the islands, the one exporting to Europe, and then the ones exporting you know, from uh, Cape Verde to uh, to to Brazil and uh, and other places like you know Cuba and you know uh, other other places in the Caribbean. That you can't get worse than that. But then the Portuguese had a famous instrument of torture called the palmatoria, uh, which was a a heavy wooden paddle with some holes in it, and in the holes they had nails. So that when you would be hit, uh, you know, on some of your body parts, your feet or your back or whatever, with that, the nails would grab a hold of your flesh. So not only would it hurt from the blow, but then it would tear your skin. And this was one of the ways in which you were, you know, formally beaten into submission if there was a slave revolt or or whatever. So they had particularly enforcers, like um, uh, they called them grumets, who would be, you know, designed, uh, designed just to beat beat people and keep them in terror. So the vast majority of the history of Cape Verde, up to including the the end of slavery, that that was what the economy was about. Slave plantation export and slave uh, slave plantation economy and export economy of slaves. So that's hardly a civilizing mission. So that that, was was true in Muslim. yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that was true well, also uh, in Angola. 
and Mozambique. I've heard from many people. There's actually uh, a documentary that was uh, that was um, produced by uh, the the Portuguese main um, television um, a company. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's not the highest quality, but they were talking. You know, it's testimonials and um, uh, from uh, Portuguese military people, people that lived in that time, specific mostly about Mozambique and Angola. And they were talking about the treatment or mistreatment that the 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 Africans um, in, in those two countries, uh, grown men would be walking down the street, and if they looked at the Portuguese person the wrong way, there would be uh, severe corporal punishment. Uh, they would right. be beaten up with the palmataria. Uh, I mean, grown men, like 50, 60 For years sure. old, they, they would just be tortured right there. Uh, beaten up and and the funny thing about Palmatar is that even in my youth, that was um, a deterrence that was used in school. Yeah, to and to so frighten you. If you into if you submission. if you got the wrong answer, you the teachers would hit you with the Palmatar. Obviously, yeah. it didn't have the nails in, but it had everything no. but the nails. <laughs> yeah, and it would be severe. I mean, I'm, I'm, a severe I'm being. Laughing, but it's nothing funny about that, you know. No. And it would traumatize well, then, children, you know. For sure, and then in in the administration of the uh, of the interior uh, that they still had some left, they had what <clears throat> were called aldamientos, but they were just uh, concentration camps, and so people could go out to their farms during the day. But then at night they would have to come back behind the minefields and barbed wire. So d- during the war it was the, the most extreme situation. But even before, uh, they used all the means of terror, of uh, taxes, of of beating people. Uh, you know, some of the worst were like Tixera Pinto up till 1936, where he would go and recruit uh, soldiers or slaves or f- forced labor for whatever project. And he used to, all, you know, just they could just shoot somebody, and there would be no, uh, you know, rec- no uh, implications, no recrimination, no penalty. And even during the war, when they would capture uh, far or foul soldiers, appeared, mostly they would just be shot. Um, and and that was that. Was that. Um, and even I remember seeing uh, people in the liberated zones who had escaped or been freed or something and they uh they had their ears cut off i saw women with breasts cut off just to torture them i mean it's some pretty horrible stuff yeah so this I mean, was the uh, portuguese and this was this was just a few decades ago <laughs> it's not like yeah. we're talking you know uh ancient history the, the this no was, and and uh, that's when we had ago. some i some idea to report it, uh, you know, I mean, there weren't a lot of journalists there. I mean, I was the only one to, I think that I, there were some other journalists who went in different parts of Guinea, but I think I'm maybe the only one to cross the country from north to south uh, completely. So I, uh, at this particular time in the war, and, you know, imagine before there were journalists to report, they then you could do whatever you want, rape, pillage, loot, kill, torture. There was nothing that anybody could do about it because no, they wouldn't let uh, the word go out. So they were free to do well, uh, any not, anything they wanted. 
before I touch, there is a, a, a proverbial elephant in the room. Uh, I, I, I need mm-hmm. to address it because my whole thing is to is to get at the truth and um and, and look at things from um from a very critical point of view. But um mm-hmm. digressing back to the leadership of PAIGC. Obviously right. Amilcar Cabral, um uh, literally uh with his assassination, obviously um a lot of times what happens whenever we have a charismatic figure um, with their demise uh, physically, uh, they're literally immortalized. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. literally take uh, a saint-like, um, uh, right. they, they, they become immortal in, in, in a way. Um, right. But there were others. Who can, can you yeah. touch on some other key figures in leadership Obviously, is it fair to say, let me digress back, is it fair to say, and you can answer this and then pick up and, and maybe highlight some of the top uh, uh, leaders that comes to mind and touch a little mm-hmm. bit on that uh, for us? Because we all know about Milton Cabral. We, uh, we know the image most of all. We don't know his theory. Right. Unfortunately, it's not something that has been, it's been uh, advocated for, which I think is a shameful right. thing, but uh, understanding yeah. the context we're speaking on. But is it, fair to, is, it, is it correct to estimate that in the fighting, the people that put their life on the line, is it, is it correct to say that 95% of them were people from the mainland of Guinea-Bissau? Not even... Yeah. Uh, the leadership was overwhelmingly Caverdian. Uh That would be C- the Cabral and his brother Luis, Aristides Ferreira, Pedro Pires, and uh, many other uh, uh, of the top leaders in the PAIGC were Caverdian. Uh, and because it was in Guinea, and of course we're, that's the largest population, uh, and Cape Verde did, did never really had an armed struggle. I mean, almost they did, but it never really did. So the combatants were were especially from Africa. So that was sort of normal. But uh, on the other hand, there, when you mentioned the you know 800-pound gorilla, uh, there was some tension because Cape Verdeans, on one hand, in Cape Verde, they're victimized, and in uh, in in the U.S., Cape Verdeans have the issues with African Americans and you know our sort of binary of uh, racial polarity. But in uh, Africa, sometimes uh, Cape Verdeans were the colonial uh, middlemen. And so some Africans had actually a negative experience with Cape Verdeans, and they would see them as implementers of, uh, of Portuguese colonialism. So there was a certain amount of tension. And I think without getting too much in the weeds, I think there was some of that, or at least was marketed, when Nino, who was had did have some Caverdian roots actually, but anyway, he marketed his Africanness, and in the coup of November 1980, he overthrew Luis Cabral, uh, arguing that we were tired of Caverdians, uh, you know, always leading and getting all the benefit. Well, Emilcar Cabral didn't get any benefit; he he was killed, and even uh, when the Portuguese had their plot. Uh, in November, in uh, January 2000, uh, 1973, the plan was to capture Cabral, capture Aristides Pereira, but in the struggle, Cabral was killed. I don't think that was their plan. And then 
to uh, they did uh, kidnap basically Aristides Pereira, and if it weren't for a Soviet uh, plane and uh, and motor vessel, he, they, he was being taken back from Conakry up to Bissau, and 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 he was liberated. Uh, when I first saw him, he still was nursing uh, injuries to his wrist from where he had been tied up. So it was uh, even the intra-PIGC politics where Innocenzo Cani pulled the trigger to kill Cabral. Uh, there was some tension about you know leadership and so forth. But the the, the important thing is that from his death. In January, it went straight to the operation of Milcar Cabral and straight on into what we've already been talking about, independence of Guinea, independence of Cape Verde, indeed independence of uh, of uh, Portugal. So despite the fact of his, you know, I mean, or because of the fact of his great leadership, um, the, the movement succeeded even though he had been killed. Uh, I might say that even that would be the same with the assassination of uh, uh, Eduardo Mundlane in Dar es Salaam by Pied in 1969, the war was already five years old, and there was a transition to Samora Michel, who unfortunately also got assassinated by uh, the South Africans. Um, but the movement went on to the independence of Mozambique. Sadly, in both cases, all three cases, Guinea, Cape Verde, and Mozambique, they did have civil wars, uh, you know, as a result of, you know, you know, competition for power and so forth. But that's another story, post-colonial story. So that gives you some idea. Of course, uh, Pedro Pires went on to become the first prime minister and Aristides Pereira, the first president of Cape Verde. And because of the, I'd say, wisdom of Pedro Pires, uh, when there was a you know, a, a split uh, that formed the MPD, Movement for Democracy, uh, Movimiento para Democracia, that generated uh, uh, Vega. Uh, and I think Pedro Pires figured he was going to win that election, but he, he did lose. But as a gentleman and a scholar and fighting for really independence, political independence, he stepped aside, and there was a peaceful transition. And every every election in Cape Verde since has been a democratic election. Sure, there's political issues. Uh, I could list a bunch of them, but there's never been a coup. I don't imagine there'll be a coup. And Cape Verde's a poor country, but it's secure and stable and democratic. And it's, uh, it's a great beacon for the rest of Africa. That's why uh, Pedro Pierce has received the Mo Ibrahim Award for Good Governance because he's uh, eagerly and freely stepped aside. Uh, more African countries need to do that, and unfortunately there's some where the leaders want to stay for 30 years and and uh, destroy their country, destroy their own reputations. But anyway, that's uh, another little slice of all these complicated uh, parts of history. It, 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 it is complicated. Uh, it is complex, meaning it has many layers uh, from my mm -hmm. uh, perspective. But there is an, also another one of those founding fathers um, that I I don't hear much about him, Abilu Duarte. Abili uh, what can you tell us yeah. about him? Well, uh, he was an intellectual. 
Cape Verdean, of course, um, a really a towering figure and completely supporting, uh, you know, PAIGC. Uh, and his wife, uh, I believe she's still, Belio has passed away, but I think his wife, who's a sociologist, also a great intellectual, I think uh, she's still uh, living. Um, and, and they are of Cape Verdean roots, and so they spent their uh, their lives, uh, you know, post-independence in um, in uh, Cape Verde. So I, I met him again in Cape Verde, uh, but they were, uh, you know, com- combatants. Like uh, some like uh, uh, Domingo Ramos was another uh, great hero who died yeah, so in the another, war. Yeah, you beat me to the punch. I was gonna I was gonna yeah. bring him up right away because as a young or Titina, uh, child, Titina I Silla. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Or Titina Silla. Uh, she was uh, yeah, African. Yeah, Yes. Yeah, but she's a great leader of the women's uh, branch of the of PIGC. In Guinea-Bissau, and they have also OM Save in Cape Verde, uh, and Maria Cabral. I, I think she's still uh, living. Um, the second wife of Emilcar Cabral. She's still uh, in, I think, in Praia. Um, but Domingo Ramos was a great uh, war hero. Um, uh, they put him on a coin. I think maybe yes, that coin has been replaced by other, you know, by it, other it coins they put on. Yeah. The 20 cent well, point. let me that just mention, point. yeah, the case of uh, of the flag, because the first flag was PIGC flag, and there was one flag for two countries, and then mm-hmm. after 1980, this tension between Cape Verde and the coast, uh, Guinea-Bissau, uh, you know, compelled uh, the Guinea-Bissau to continue to use that flag. But then Cape Verde made a, a small adjustment, looked pretty much the same except it had a seashell and corn on it. But then after uh, the MPD came to power, this African-style flag, and it was African colors, you know, very emblematic of West Africa, was replaced by the current flag, which, to be honest, is a more of a European-style red, white, and blue, and, you know, it's... And it's completely for Cape Verde, and it's abandoned, basically, the symbolic, you know, uh, ties to Africa, at least respected in a flag. So those tensions of identity in Cape Verde, on the coast, and indeed in New England, the tensions of who's a Cape Verdean, uh, how black are you, and how, you know, are you passing or not passing, and, you know, all these complexities which you know, have many families arguing about who's what and which category and say, oh, well, I was born and it was Portugal, so I'm Portuguese. And then the Portuguese say, well, you don't look Portuguese to me. And African-Americans say you're not black enough. And, you know, all these things about slavery and Cape Verdeans came in their own ships and African-Americans came in somebody else's ships. And so, you know, these struggles of basically identity you know, carry on in all different ways, and even though, I mean, history never stops. It, it seems like uh, uh, there is an identity crisis uh, at times, and I think uh, most of it has mm-hmm. to do with lack of education or lack of understanding. But yeah. one thing that I also find interesting is that uh, um, Guinea-Bissau also had um, many different issues within tribalism 
uh, six uh, very distinct tribes, if I if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. That all that I think, in my opinion, my genie, the genius of Amilcar Cabral, was how he was right. able to bring everyone together. Being we could say an outsider because uh, although he was born in Guinea Bissau, uh, he spent mm-hmm. most of his years in Cabo Verde and in Lisbon, but mm-hmm. he was able to bring together uh, under the common denominator to galvanize, bring everyone together under one objective, and then introduce right. the real outsider, K-Verdians, and, right. and, and also integrate that into the leadership uh, position. And, and I could right, empathize, me personally being K-Verdian, I could empathize with people from Guinea, uh, some of them, uh, because they do, mm-hmm. I think they did have a legitimate, a real legitimate um, uh, issues with uh, with the history of Cape Verdeans, that because a lot of Cape Verdeans uh, uh, immigrated to before they started come, immigrating in masses to the United States and uh, mm-hmm. in, in Europe, pr- primarily Portugal, most Cape Verdeans immigrated to Africa, uh, Guinea-Bissau, right. Senegal, Angola, Especially. Mozambique, and most Cape Verdeans live well there in comparison, yeah. not as well as the Portuguese, to the other but Africans. almost in a caste system. They were the buffer. Yeah. They were the buffer. Yep. Uh, sometimes. Yep. That, and that's so a, by by a poverty stricken African, they resented that situation because they could see who was in control. And even though Cape Verdeans were not fully in control, behind the Cape Verdeans were the Portuguese military and so forth. So, that, right. yeah, that's a, a very fascinating uh, you know point. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you um, know. W- yes. Well, th- sorry, this conversation could—it's a—it's an un- unfinished story because what yes. uh, will happen in the future? Uh, of course, it's in the future. But I think uh, you know when you mention about the different ethnic groups of Guinea-Bissau, you can say that there's three main conf- groups: uh, the so-called West Atlantic people living along the coast, like Manjakos and Susus and these kind of people. Bolama, uh, and they had the greatest to gain because they were really uh, heavily uh, preyed upon in the slave trade and so forth. But then the next group is Mende people, like from Gabu. These were descending from the great empire of Mali, and they uh, they were more uh, uh, well. The areas I walked through were, were especially those people in the north, particularly like Gabu. Um, and then the Balanta were along the coast. They were some of the ma- major groups involved in the armed struggle against Portugal. But then to the east, there were a Fula people who were a Muslim, and they were actually a little bit more uh, reluctant to join. And the Portuguese actually tried to split the PIGCs by giving uh, top leaders from eastern Bissau you know, free trips to uh, Mecca for Hajj and things like that. So uh, it was still, nonetheless, a brilliant tactical understanding. And uh, because of the vast experience of Cabral as an agronomist, basically the ethnography, uh, you know, the anthropology of Guinea-Bissau, and that was a big asset, um, you know, in in mobilizing people for the armed struggle after uh, 1959. 
So there's a, there's so many. I mean, my field is African studies and anthropology. So this is something that I find uh, really fascinating. Uh, and you could have the same story going up to uh, up to Senegal, where you have Wolof dominance, and then the people in Casamance, who are also Mande people, they are frustrated with the Wolof, even to the point they had armed struggle in the MFDC in Casamance. And uh, likewise in Guinea Conakry, with some of the uh, majority there are Muslim, but there's different concepts about, you know, the Islamic uh, uh, jihads in the old days with uh, with Touré and so forth. So you really need to have a deep ethnographic understanding as well as political, uh, you know, tactical, strategic, all these things. And that's where the genius of Cabral you know, comes forward, and I really recommend to anybody uh, interested in, from whatever perspective, to read the works of Cabral. You know, the uh, uh, you know the one book came out lately, "Tell No Lies, Claim No Easy Victories," and then, of course, his collected works, "Unidad e Luta," the Unity and Struggle, and they're they're very inspirational. Or the famous article, uh, "The National Liberation is an Act of Culture." is a great concept how he argued that uh, Portuguese derailed Africans from making their own way through history and uh, national liberation armed struggle in particular was a way to put people back on their own history making whether they've had good ideas or bad but at least it's their own ideas and not somebody else's so that's some another dimension there's just so many and, it's and like I, an onion I mean you just peel back and you want and you have another another uh, aspect. Yeah, and, and I think it was great foresight for Cabral to choose the 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 area of study because it it afforded him the opportunity to really understand the uh, not just the people but the terrain uh of Guinea Bissau. Right. Uh right, because exactly. he worked I think that I and I think that that was purposely done. He purposely because from my understanding he was an an excellent student. And could have went in any yeah. fields of study or profession, but he instead chose something that a lot of people might shy away because you know there's no glamour in it. But from from yeah. what he was planning, uh, it, it couldn't be any more perfect than that. Uh, so no, and in military I, I was, tactics, I'm inclined to think he did, it, he did it purposely. No, he's he's a towering historical figure. If imagine if he had been. In a bigger country or something, he'd be more, more oh, yeah. famous. But with his assassination, never actually ruling, you know, his independent lands, we never could see how he would have addressed the, uh, you know, the issues that came along. But um, you know, needless to say, what we do know about him and the success that even in his death he still succeeded that that's a that's a pretty good compliment. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, he. Um... Uh, what's the the word skips my mind? You know when um, uh, when a figure, um, a very charismatic, a very uh, um, a popular figure, um, mm-hmm. not immortalized, but they um, uh, yeah, well, it's a, a martyr. You know, what, what's mar- yeah, yeah, martyred they, or a... you become a martyr. You become a martyr, yeah. uh, and basically the legacy uh, will outlive, especially if they if they pass at a young age, which is never. I don't think it's good because he had so so much so so much more growth and, and maturity right. 
And, I mean, can you – yeah, but the potential was so incredible. But uh, yep. from the other perspective, he left a good enough legacy, which I think we um, we need to study, we need to diagnose a little bit better, we need to have better dialogues to, mm-hmm. to see how we could we could implement because he did leave enough. And I happen to have both of those books. Uh, and my my objective right. is in the future to, to do a podcast specifically um, – of, of, Looking at those you know, works. diagnosing a little bit of a yeah uh, with right. a, a, a lot more detail, but well, uh, we're getting closer towards uh, you know what we discuss is time. As I mentioned, it goes really fast, and the the, the right. conversation it is really an excellent comment. I appreciate this so much. But I um, before we um, we could close out. Because uh, unfortunately, we do. Um, I do see that there are uh, a lot of people, and, and you know, this is still uh, fairly new. Um, I've been listening to podcasts and following, but for within the Cape Verdean community, it's still fairly new, and a lot of people mm. are still in participation. Uh, some of uh, just shy, make uh, calling in and making their, their calls, but that's okay. Um, one of the things that I also, because I'm looking at it from all, all angles, not just for my curiosity, but also to, to be, uh, not to put any um, taboos into this, but we, and this is a, and you could, you could answer it however you, you wish to, obviously, but from my understanding, the, the, the Novo Estado, the regime of Salazar mm-hmm. and Caetano, uh, hmm. lasted uh, many, many decades, at least 50 years, if I'm not mistaken. And hmm. they had a very, very, they were very conservative, but they had a very, very, from my impression, a very strong tie with the Catholic Church. And, and, right. and this is, um, this is a, a, a touchy subject because um, within hmm. my family, uh, most of Cape Verdeans are predominantly Catholic. Obviously, we have the Nazarene Church, the Protestant Nazarene Church, which came in uh, towards the, uh, I would say, in the, it, it, they, I mean, they really started making ways in the 30s, but uh, uh, converting people from Catholicism. Uh, but the, the Stade Novo um, was very, very uh, much Catholic, even uh, Salazar coming right. within the seminary. Can you touch on that uh, in the contradiction, or maybe could that be, a, uh, uh, you know, could that be something that, in a way, is preventing a lot of Cavaliers from from really embracing Africanism or maybe Pan Africanism, which I think is something that Cabral was very much leaning towards, or was in fact what we would consider a Pan African. Um, can you touch a little bit on that? Sure. Well, it's it is no secret that during the uh, uh, 30s and up to the end of fascism in in Spain, in Portugal, and in Italy, the role of the Catholic Church was totally compromised. I mean, they couldn't overthrow the government, and so they decided rather than to fight it, they would either keep their mouths shut about crimes. Or, um, or they would actually support it. And, of course, the government did everything it could to gain the support of the church. So it was a, 
you know, a, a compromise with uh, with the with the evil. Uh, so the the Catholic Church was uh, very much opposed to independence. Uh, and, and, you know, they played the anti-communist card, the pro-fascist card, with stability and so forth. And and as bad as it might be, communism was worse, and socialism was worse, and anti-colonialism was worse. And don't question the, you know, any of those three or four governments we could put in, uh, you know, Hitler even for that matter. Uh, so you, you're you're right. There was just there's no question that the Catholic Church was a conservative and reactionary force. Um, and I, I'm not particularly interested, like, what, you know, I mean, nowadays uh, the Catholic Church is playing an enlightened role on some social and economic issues, but on this uh, concern with uh, child abuse and, you know, priests and marriage and stuff, they just have, they're stuck in a rut that, is causing actually a serious crisis in the Catholic Church that they can't seem to, you know, address without changing some of their tenets, which they don't want to do, and changing their behavior, which they simply have to change their tenets. And so they're in in a pretty, I think it's not a secret, they're in a crisis, uh, mostly of their own doing. And Cape Verde is a case in point. Uh, the church is, is strong. I mean, I respect anyone's religious belief to believe whatever they wish, but they should uh, also respect other people who either don't want to be religious at all or, you know, want uh, political independence. So uh, we shouldn't be shocked because, of course, the Catholic Church basically under papal bulls divided up the world in the first place in the treaties of uh, 15th century Tordesillas and Alcasovas, they cut the world into two big parts. And uh, they blessed the slavery, and they had the Spanish Inquisition. Of course, that was in line with the Portuguese Inquisition, which is one of the most brutal times. Uh, so they have a lot of historical baggage. And uh, until or unless, they, I mean, even the Inquisition was not officially shut down until like a few decades ago. It lasted officially without much action, but some terrible crimes of of, um, of rape and pillage and genocide and slavery that were uh, constituted by the church. I mean, that's just, I'm not trying to be mean, it's just a factual case. And the Cape Verdean uh, instance uh, does give you another slice at it. I mean, I appreciate some people want independence and some people don't. Um, but the Catholic Church made a real clear decision about its its particular views. So there there we go. And that's from the beginning of time. You go to Ribera Grande, you'll see uh, right just up across the beach from the pillory, Pilarino is the chapels and churches and stuff. And, of course, the the main uh, basilica there the of uh, Ribera Grande is now in ruins, but there's plenty of new churches there's also quite a few Muslim communities now that Africans are coming from the mainland. So I uh, have pretty deep interest in Islam. Uh, so I, I've been to some mosques in both in Mandelo and in uh, in Praia. So anyway, the, nothing nothing stays the same. The Portuguese probably uh, would not uh, welcome any Muslim at the time because it was uh, in the hands of the Catholic Church. So there's a few more yeah, it, things to think about. Yeah, to me, to me as a Cape Verdean, 
uh, born and raised there, but also as an immigrant um, here. Um, I just find that um, in many ways, you know, most of my family, so I was raised also within the Catholic Church and the and the religion. Sure. Um, I, I just uh, and looking at the history and trying to uncover the facts, the 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 actual truth. You see, still people still stuck, and they're not making the connection between yep. uh, the faith and really what has happened. Um, and uh, and they don't even want to think about it. And I think that no. faith within the church is is making people not even want to address real yep. occurrences or real things that. Um, uh, has happened and, and, and it's continued right. to happen, and and they just don't want to, you know, no question jump about it. blind. I I didn't hear yeah. anything, I didn't see anything, you know, those three uh, monkeys, if you will. But um, to conclude, uh, I appreciate mm-hmm. so much your time on this, and, and this conversation it's my pleasure. Is, to me is very fa- very fascinating. We to preserve. Conclude. <laughs> yes, I wanted to just to, if you could just extend on that. The transition from Cape Verde's um, one-party rulership of PAICV uh, mm-hmm. towards the uh, the, the, the uh, what they call the the opening or abertura for the democracy. Yeah. I actually, well, Cape Verde I personally was in. You know, I'm sorry. You know, Cape Verde started with one party for two countries. You know, so because right. Guinea-Bissau but, but trans- and. I'm, but then and then when and, and, 1980 came, then it became just the PAICV, and then when right, the MPD the split, yeah, then uh, then there was um, you know pluripartisanism, and now there's you know in the in the National Assembly uh, there's, um, there's several different parties, and they make coalition right. governments. I want to make, and, and I want you to confirm this one point because this one point is very 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 important, and I think people mm-hmm. miss this. From my understanding, the MPD movement, at least at its uh, inception, the founders mm-hmm. were all high-ranking PIECV uh, members. Is that correct? Absolutely. Can we say that's a that schism? A... Can we say that's a, a pure schism within the party? Yeah. Yeah, and the proof of it is that there was only by the constitution till they it was amended, that was the only legal party. So they had to be if they were going to be politically active at all, they had to be within the PICV. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, the tolerance of Pedro Pires to allow th- this faction, which became MPD, uh, to emerge. And now, of course, it's a full-blown. You know, party or even a rival to PICV. Um, no, but absolutely, anyone who was politically active up till 1980 had to be in PICV. That was the only party I, allowed I, I, by constitution. I, I say this because, believe it or not, most people think it's just another group that was formed when in reality, no. MPD was actual members within PIECV that had their differences and decided that yep. they're going to break up. They created a schism and created right. their, their own party, but they were members for several years, sure. high-ranking members. 
including oh, yeah, exactly. uh, uh, Renat Cardozo, who was one of the, the, the top members that had yeah, well, uh, some concerns. Exactly. Well, there, the issue yeah. of Renato Cardozo was, I, I've been to his grave, actually, because he, he mm-hmm. was murdered. And there was right. a lot of allegations about, was this just a personal thing or was it assassination? Right. And, and so forth. Anyway, that's a story which you get a lot of different yes, interpretations Yes, that's a whole different, about. yes. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I've been and, actually and, uh, to his grave. Right, and he was a brilliant person, uh, uh, a very yeah. intelligent uh, we we may even say a, a genius of a person in many ways because he was uh, uh, mm. uh, in many ways had a lot of similar uh, uh, um, intelligence as Cabral. He was a, a, right. a great poet, wrote great uh, music, exactly. uh, had uh, good ideas. So it, it was also a great shame. Um, and, and I think his life and his work deserves to be uh, right. studied uh, more so we could understand because um, uh, so we don't use them a lot in a negative context, but we could also celebrate yeah. uh, some of his geniuses. And I think this is something as Caverdians really? um, people need to do. Um, so I and hope I, they I'm can also find interested in learning more writings. Uh, and so they could be available. I mean, within any, any political movement of any time, any time in human history, you're going to find centrists, you're going to find leftists, and you're going to find rightists. That's uh, just the way people are. And I mean, today with the Democratic Party, and you know, there are different uh, perspectives. And let's hope that right. democracy sufficiently prevails so that uh, they can be sorted out in elections. Yes, and, and lastly, uh, to that point, just to conclude that point, um, mm-hmm. I've also, I remember, I remember I was still young. I was about 12 years old, uh, mm-hmm. around that time, 12, 13. But I remember at the time that the greatest opposition to the PA, PA, uh, the PAICV uh, party, mm-hmm. the PAICV party, Mm-hmm. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, again, I've, I really haven't done uh, in-depth search, but I, I'm just going based on what I remember. The biggest opposition they had was the Catholic Church. Is that correct? Uh, well, that, let's say informally, but then formally in and Caverde. effectively, the Catholic Church uh, supported Usid, uh, and they were sympathetic to that. Uh, there was uh, some other parties like UPICV, which sometimes was called Maoist, and, and, and you know, with the Litau family. Um, so there were other parties once things started to break up. But USID was, I would say, the biggest rival, and it did have much more support uh, from the Catholic Church, particularly in Mandela, maybe even more than Priya. Okay, so but what I'm what I'm saying is not necessarily what party they supported, but they they were a very outspoken opposition oh, yeah. to the party. Yeah, for uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like abortion. A, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, no, that's right. That I mean, it, it's uh, it's the same as uh, basically today. They are basically patriarchal, so they can't be for women's rights. In a strong way, and they are 
against uh, you know uh, right to choose right you know abortion rights they take a negative uh, role um so right there they're addressing half the population of the world in a way that doesn't support that uh, population then because they have a conservative out- outlook on economy and so forth uh, then anyone who's who's male and progressive is is not interested in supporting them they're not you know the leaders in science. So if you're an educated, critical thinking person, that, that's not where you're going to find the support. And that's a, a you know a centuries of that particular problem. So yeah, yes. in Cape Verde, it's basically uh, no difference. On the other hand, as you pointed out, uh, Cape Verdeans are majority Catholic. So when the Pope came to Cape Verde, there was just a gigantic uh, you know turnout, and they printed special or minted special coins, and the, the, he was very popular. So, you know, what can you say? There we are. Right. Religion well, in modern society is... A... Yes. I, and I think, um, and this is something that needs to be looked a little... It's a very, very touchy subject, but I mm, think for sure. uh, if someone wants to pick up on it and really diagnose it, because I think it, it, it does create... Uh, um, a major issue in a society that need that has many different um, um, challenges that needs to mm-hmm, progress. For sure. And when you have that conflict between faith and politics, and when they're rubbing yep. against each other, uh, it, um, it it causes um, um, it, it could cause a lot of friction and, and emotions. No, no question about um, it. But I think. Yeah, I think what needs to happen, though, people needs to look for tangibles as opposed to intangibles. I think it's important to have faith, but just to hope and pray, uh, I mean, you got to get out there and make things happen, and you need yep. you need to have tangible things. And I think Amilcar Cabral spoke about that, that the fight exactly. wasn't just the fight to say we're free. And he it's always respected to, to tangibles. Yeah, he respected uh, freedom to, of religion. And at least in the constitutions in these two countries we're talking right. about, there's there's freedom of religion and and basically, in Guinea-Bissau it's like zero, no problem at all, because you got all you got Muslims and animists and atheists and Christians and everything. Um, in in Cape Verde it's it's not. Uh, I think under colonialism was a much bigger issue, and nowadays. Uh, it's less an issue, but it's still, you know, on on social topics, the role of the Catholic Church, uh, you know, is still serious. They got so many internal crises, particularly about, you know, child molestation and the right of marriage, and you know that they got a lot of uh, issue about replacing the priesthood, and people don't want to be, uh, you know, priests because they can't be married and so forth. But so anyway. Well, we yeah. certainly have so, covered what would in the, you, what in the would half you an hour we were talking. We talked about 90 minutes. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's I fine. apologize for that. And, and in closing, what no, would you it was like, great. You mentioned a couple of books. You mentioned a couple of books. But uh, mm-hmm. you also wrote several books, obviously some are uh, based in the Sudan um, uh, right. region, the the East uh, African region, but you mm-hmm. also wrote a, a book. I think your most famous book, at least for my impression, is the Creole Colony 
to to Independence that has the I think it's the yeah. Ernestina. It does have a sailboat on it, Caver. Right. Um, that's Ernestina, a, yeah. So yeah, and it's okay, cheap. It's a paperback, and it needs to be updated, I guess. But then I have my mm-hmm. historical dictionaries of Cape Verde, and they are in the fourth edition already. And then I have written books okay. on Libya, many books on ancient Africa and Sudan, and you know. And now I work for the Navy, so I write books on security and you know terrorism and stuff. So I have many interests, of course, beyond Cape Verde. Now, if we, if you could give three books that uh, that comes to mind right away that you would recommend for any listeners, uh, a mm-hmm. takeaway, something that, that someone could take and, and, and expand from there, uh, what would be three books uh, that you would recommend that uh, people that are interested uh, in this Three topic, of my books or three uh, of books in general? Well, three, three of my books or include, uh, well, let's say three. Well, if it's your books, I, I would say, uh, you know, the Creole uh, colony to independent yeah. nation and then both of the, the right. dictionaries. Right. Because yeah. those are then more I guess people, books. Yeah, people could read uh, Basil Davidson on African history. He's written a lot of popular, uh, popular books. Yes. Um, to uh, the extent heard, that slavery. Okay is important. Uh, Philip Curtin's uh, history, it's basically the Bible of slave studies. It's now pretty old, but still has got a lot of uh, interesting, you know, data. Uh, You could also read novels, um, you know, about South Africa, the anti-apartheid struggle, you know, um, read the works of uh, Nelson Mandela or Julius Nereri. You know, there's so many, you know, towering figures uh, either for ancient history or, you know, medieval history or modern history, um, you know, political history. Um, so it mostly depends. And don't neglect women. I've written a book on Middle Eastern women, too. Um, and, and since they're half the population, we can't forget uh, women. So there's yes, but in important... The context, in the context of Cape Verde, uh, because we're dealing primarily mm-hmm. with within the Cape Verdean audience, if you right. could uh, recommend uh, just eat something for starters, or maybe something intermediary, and then something a little bit more yeah. of a, uh, well, of, of uh, the yeah for yeah. for a starter, you could also I have this little pamphlet on uh, Cape Verdeans in Rhode Island. I think it's still available. And then for more serious researchers, you could look at the fourth edition of the Cape Verde Historical Dictionary. Or my big fat book on Guinea-Bissau, which is it's really like the which I co-authored with Peter Mendy, who's from Guinea-Bissau. It's a huge book for every major African studies library should have that. Um, so those would be the ones most relevant to Cape Verdeans in your listening audience. Um, and, and, and then these, uh, these books, maybe Basil yeah, Davidson. Basil Davidson's work on Cape Verde, that's also a possibility. Or Deidre Mintel or Marilyn Halter, they've all written on Cape Verde. Or, or the Portuguese you know, classics like Antonio Carrera, if you can read Portuguese or some of his works are in English. That's um, really important to read those. If you're Cape Verdean and you haven't 
and you're a serious researcher, Antonio Carrera is, is must read. Not to mention the the literary, you know, figures, Balthasar Lopes and, and these kind of people. Absolutely, and and just to conclude, those those two dictionaries. Um, hmm. When we say dictionaries, a lot of times we're thinking, you know, go find out what these words mean. But these are right. actually books of references where you could go. Yeah. Can you the just primary, explain that a little bit better so people can really understand what these yeah. books are? So any topic that you have of interest, you can look that up alphabetically. And then it's cross-referenced to other sources, so you can read it as you are stimulated by the topics that are represented. And then if you want the primary sources, it has a very big bibliography, so that then you could go to the original sources, because these dictionaries are secondary uh, sources. Uh, so that's you, you can almost read read it as you follow your own you know, line of thought or line of research or your own way of thinking about things. So it's not a dictionary like, yes, like a, it's a historical dictionary for topics of, you know, his, economic, political, cultural, ethnographic, any kind of way you'd like to look at these, it, there's, you'll find something. Not the end of your research by any means, but it's a great place to start and get exposed to some of the, you know, links and cross-references, you know, that you would find. I, I would say it's almost like an encyclopedia. Would, would that be a... Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, it, doing that's justice really to what it? it is. Yeah, I think right. that you uh, could call it encyclopedia. I, I want to yep. say to folks, go to Amazon. That's where I got mine. You know, for... Mm-hmm. You know, although the, these books are not, you know, as you mentioned, the Cape Verde Creole Colony, I mean, for, for about $100, a lot of these folks right now, we have to put, we, we, we really have to put the uh, the ownership on the parents. You know, you have a lot of parents right now who mm. go out, buy their children $100, 200 I walk around all the time in, within Boston. Public buy a schools, pair of shoes. Um, and I see, a, uh, I, I see a lot of these children with $200 pair of shoes. And yeah, These books will last uh, longer you than can, the shoes. At, and these and these books, uh, I mean, it, it's just like getting into a, a rabbit hole. You don't know where it's going to take you. It's a book that That's you can it. just open and, and leisurely, just casually one day you don't have anything to do. Just open at random and start right. reading a, about a specific, a specific thing. And the and Creole Colony. Yeah, you know, the Creole Colony book is, is in paperback. It's not very much. The other ones are more expensive. Right. I mean, I don't get any money from these things. It's mostly for the publishers. Right. But well, uh, it, with, with all due respect, I'm actually, you know, I'm speaking to the parents about having these resources for their children. It's a must. Christmas because, is coming. I mean, the if, yeah, the information you could get from these books is just amazing. Maybe you as right. a parent may not pick it up, but imagine you put it there. Children are more curious. Uh, they have much more curiosity. It may pick it up, and who knows where this will take them uh, with their ingenuity and their curiosity and, and uh, where this could be. And, and this is really what the crux of it is. This is where I want to start hmm. motivating people uh, to do this. And I'm a huge believer that everyone, especially if you have children, you need to start building your library. And it That's might it. be on topics you like, but build your library because that may be one of the greatest um the things you could um, 
you could influence or, or, or leave yep. your children with um, by your heritage. mind. And absolutely, you. So this is a must. No excuse. Uh, yep. You know, every Cape Verdean should at least have that uh, historical dictionary of the Republic of Cape Verde. Um, I, I think that Guinea-Bissau is uh, is is much more interesting for me because I mean, there's so much more inf- information. Correct me if I'm wrong. It does overlap within the Cape Verde as well. I haven't looked yeah. into it in depth, but it does overlap. Is that correct? Right. And the it's a great yeah, great gift for Cape Verdean Independence Day. Put a ribbon around it and say. To your children, hey, read this. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you say that because uh, I was telling my daughter uh, a few days ago that uh, from now on I only give people books for gifts. Uh, That's and she smart. was like, well, people don't want books. I said, no, I'm only going to give people. If I'm going to give someone a, a, a gift, I'm giving them a book because I know more than likely they're not buying that book. And who knows if they pick it up and read it, it, it will yeah. it, it could benefit that person and benefit anybody else. So yeah, with that you have said, a, uh, Dr. Loeb. you have yeah, a bed sorry, with a broken leg, you can stick the book under it. <laughs> <laughs> Never. These books need to be cherished and it needs to be passed around in, in, in for generations. But, um, you know, people used to get killed for, for having certain books. So because That's books, it. there's so much that could, that could be used to expand the mind. And for humanity itself, I mean, it, it's very important. But, uh, Dr. Logan, I, I do not want to take any more of your time. Um, I do want to thank you so much for accepting this invitation and for blessing us with this information um, and testimonials about your experience. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, this was amazing. And I think people are really, well, really going to love this one. Muito, muito obrigado. I really appreciate this opportunity. And, of course, I don't want people to just listen to what I say, but read the books and read other books that I didn't write and find the critical thinking and, uh, and your your own route to truth and reality and, you know, integrity, honesty. Thank you so much. And I, w- I want to wish you uh, um, a good night and uh, a very constructive and productive week and uh, until next time we get an opportunity to, uh, as well to converse a little bit more about different things but uh, I have your information now we'll keep in touch and, um, and and thank you as well to your uh, to your wife for uh, helping and accommodating this I'm sure th- at this time you know you want to spend it with your loved ones but for sharing this uh, this time uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative well, it's, of it it's my responsibility and my pleasure so thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. And bon thank you. bon night. Thank you and good night. Bon ciao. night. Ciao ciao. Okay, povo. Smoky Genuobi uh excellent conversa. Uh animado com Dr. Richard Loben. Uh um livraria de informação. Um muita espera manhosta obi. Uh, e o mais importante é que só ouve Escusa tem que ser dividido O sucesso não tem que dividir Não tem que pensar mais coletivamente Como de uh, Infelizmente Não sendo um mundo que tá funciona Em termos de Coletivo uh, E não pode começar com o que é mais próximo Filhos, famílias E vizinhos, amigos E, e, e se não nisso Está fazendo Divide com 
comunidade de Virigo Calverianos, infelizmente, com o tempo e para a eficiência dessa conversa, que até dá para não fazer altura na crioulo, mas para o Calverianos hoje em dia, Tina Calverde, para domina inglês suficiente. Uh, Dr. Loben uh, uh, te fala de uma maneira muito, uh, uh, quer dizer, não lento, mas e de uma maneira que é muito rápido para entender. Portanto, então, alguém que se fala rápido, que pode atrapalhar com palavras ou com ideias, mas te fala claro. Portanto, uh, esse ali foi uh, mais uma uh, contribuição que me queria dar uh, para a comunidade. Então, está bem, esta continua te apoia, esta continua te siga, nos dá mais... Uh, Uh, se nós tem críticas construtivas, não está pronto para receber. Uh, já sabe que alguém já falou, oh, para mim, o que está fazendo vídeo? Para mim, <risos> minha imagem, que é aquele que está interessado para, para pôr lá para alguém hoje, etc. Para mim, para mim uh, é que aquele lá que é o objetivo, o objetivo é aquela informação. Portanto, não prefiro estar continuando a fazer em áudio, uh, mas, uh, portanto, é, 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 é aquele. Uh, no futuro, em Gaspar, as pessoas também contribuem com essas perguntas, com essas, uh, uh, como ali, nós estamos como uma família. Eu chama e tive a uh, uh, chat room aberto, mas sabemos ainda que é uma coisa que você não faz no início, você começa a pegar, e nos inscreve, nos like, nos vai no Facebook, nos like uh, IDCast Podcast. E nos dá aquele like assim para nós continuar a receber mais informação. E nós vamos ouvir que esse livro. E nós sabemos que os dados de livros sobre os temas, por exemplo, na IDCast Podcast, por exemplo, que pessoas atingem desenvolver esse website, para pôr um link que alguém trabalha diretamente. E aquela livraria que digo, e vou poder fazer aquele compra, e expandir onde está por aquele link, vou poder fazer aquele compra diretamente na Amazon, vou comprar aquele livro, aqueles recursos que é importante. Pois, nós começamos a pôr uma livraria. Não tem a livraria, um estante, é que é muito grande coisa, mas tem seus livros, ainda continua a comprar livros. Uh, sei que está servindo a mim pessoalmente, está servindo a filha, está servindo, tem, um, tem uh, sobrinhas, sobrinhos, amigos, uh, e que está gosta de pista, minhas, minhas livros, por uma vez, da pista, está bem, está bem, uh, mas está uh, tendo ali também para pessoas que estão interessadas para, para dar informação. Mas tudo alguém hoje em dia, livros é barato, e nós devem. Uh, Uh, tem os Kindle, e aplicação de Kindle, se nós queremos livro de seu dentro de casa, nós queremos comprar através de Kindle, nós queremos de lá, também tem seu, uh, e documentários, quem sabe, põe também como recursos e referências, que sempre põe para dividir com pessoas, para, para abrir, para não ter aquele, para quem sabe, quem é quem pode alerta, ou dar uma informação que talvez pode despertar uma curiosidade ou uma sabedoria e que vem e contribuir, que vem trazer para trás para a comunidade como uma grande contribuição de, um, de qualquer coisa que tem. Portanto, é, é aquilo que eu creio hoje que se estimula. Mas, ainda uh, termina e com, com as músicas ali, como crioulos, gosta de música também, 
crioulos gosta dessas festas, não gosta de nós música, não te trazer uma música ali que não te esperma, mas não está bem curtido. Ok, com que ali, não te termina, não te despide, não te deseja toda pessoa a continuação de uma boa noite, na única que não está na diáspora, na Cal Verde, não te cumprimenta a todas as minhas famílias, meus amigos, uh, quero dar parabéns também à minha dona que fazia ano hoje, à uh, minha tio que fazia ano ontontem, uh, uh, ao tio João lá na Cabo Verde. Também quero dar parabéns em Cressalva, um, um primo, uh, um parente, uh, uh, G. Gilson, na, e, na Cabo Verde, dono de cockpit, um, um, um empresário, uh, uma pessoa, uh, bom, na Calveira está para jovem, mas aqui, <risos> a partir de que ano que está para de ser jovem, mas é uma pessoa que não tem quase a mesma idade, não está com cheiro para, para, um, para o seu tempo, não, já não convive, não tem seu, seu respeito para ela, não tem seu orgulho para ser, para, para, para ser uh, trabalho, uh, não só ela, tudo que está a fazer é o mesmo, não está fechando de seu, seu contente, não quer dar satisfação para fazer, e mim também está com o continua sempre a fazer mais e essa desempenha na área de, de, de leger e de ligeiro, onde que pessoas também, a hora que trabalha, se uma infra nasce pequena palestra, que dá, e o trabalho tem que dividir também. E ela está lá para ajudar também naquela área lá, que é importante. Portanto, não te despide, cumprimenta tudo, tudo, calvertianos, para tudo parte de mundos, tudo africanos, tudo pessoas de bom coração, de bom espírito, uh, que te, uh, te aprecia a humanidade e para nos tratar companheiro melhor, de melhor forma. Portanto, esperem esta curta as músicas ali e até a próxima, sabem, planem uns projetos, uns outros conversas também importante e construtivo e também que pessoas também apreciam.
Pequenino, mamá, 
Yeah. 